today on Against the Grain, what makes automated and autonomous weapons systems so popular among military establishment bigwigs? And what's being done about human-machine interaction and about some warfighters' distrust of machines? I'm CS. Roberto Gonzalez discusses his new book, War Virtually, The Quest to Automate Conflict, Militarize Data, and Predict the Future, coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Why send soldiers into battle when automated weapons can do the job? Robotic and autonomous systems are being pushed by many military officials and planners, but Roberto Gonzalez wonders whether this robo-fanaticism, as he calls it, is justified. Could automated systems do more harm than good? What's their track record in terms of friendly fire incidents and the killing of innocent civilians? And what about human trust in these machines? Can soldiers be trained to put their faith in aerial drones, unmanned terrestrial vehicles, and the like? Roberto Gonzalez is professor of anthropology at San Jose State University. His new book is War Virtually, The Quest to Automate Conflict, Militarize Data, and Predict the Future. A portion of it examines the rhetoric around and research into automated weapons and other technologies that are increasingly deployed in war zones. When Roberto and I connected recently, I noted his use in the book of the term virtual warfare and asked how he defined it. Well, virtual warfare is a term that's been used for decades now, but I don't think there's ever really been a kind of single definition for it in different people have used it in different ways to refer to different kinds of, um, of war fighting. In my book, I take a pretty broad angle on virtual warfare, and essentially I boil it down to four trends that we've seen emerging really quickly over the last decade in particular. And those four trends are, one, automated weapon systems with drones uh, kind of being the centerpiece of that really. Um, secondly, what I would consider to be a dramatic shift in what in military terms has been called psychological operations or psyops. The way I describe it in the book is we're in a new phase now of data-driven psyops in which big data is being used to target messages to um, individuals oftentimes through social media to influence uh, populations in that way. Um, and then a third element in virtual warfare that I get into in this book is um, the emergence of cyber warfare and cyber attacks and on the other side uh, cyber defense. Uh, and then finally uh, the fourth element that I consider to be a hallmark of virtual warfare is a whole range of uh, software programs that collectively uh, could be called predictive modeling software in which the aim is basically um, to predict future conflicts uh, or future protests. And an interesting branch of this uh, falls under the category of predictive policing. So these are techniques that increasingly are being used um, by domestic law enforcement um, as well. So not just for international conflict prediction, but uh, prediction of, um, of street crime, for example, uh, in cities in the United States and, and elsewhere. And is your book, War Virtually, is it a a critique of the use of uh, many of these programs and systems of virtual warfare, or is it something else? The goal of my book is really to look at these new technologies and these new uh, means of fighting wars in a really critical way. Um, part of what concerned me in looking through the literature is that so much of the work that has been done has actually been really supportive and excited by the idea of virtual warfare. Uh, in fact, some of the literature, some of the books, for example, that have been written um, on these topics uh, seem to be making the argument that somehow automated weapon systems uh, will save us from the extreme violence of war, uh, pointing to a kind of possibility in, we, in which we would have um, 
you know, war without uh, human casualties, um, since robots would hypothetically just be fighting each other. Um, the argument I make in the book is that even if we look at the U.S. government and the U.S. military's own uh, documentation, many of these technologies are deeply flawed. Uh, the automated weapon systems and drones uh, in particular. And uh, we need just look at uh, the drone wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and Yemen and Somalia and other parts of the world as evidence of the horrible toll that drone warfare has taken on civilian populations in those countries. Um, the other kind of fallacy behind the idea that somehow automated or virtual warfare will save us is the very fact that many within the military establishment and intelligence communities uh, mistrust these weapon systems so that you've got a situation uh, right now where many elites within the defense and intelligence um, hierarchies are strongly promoting these technologies as are the companies that are producing these war machines while the rank-and-file soldiers and uh, pilots and others on the ground are deeply mistrustful of, uh, of these technologies, in part because they are so flawed and there have been enough cases of friendly fire in which um, semi-autonomous or autonomous weapon systems fire on the soldiers themselves to cause concern on the part of these soldiers. And it's not often reported in the media, but there is uh, uh, really a lot of mistrust on the part of uh, rank-and-file military personnel about these machines. One of the chapters of your book begins with an account of a funeral service held at a U.S. military base in Iraq, a funeral for a fallen comrade. A funeral for whom? Well, the funeral was for a member of um, a military explosive ordnance disposal unit. So these are units that uh, are tasked with basically locating unexploded ordnance, uh, for example, roadside bombs. Um, and the funeral was for a team member by the, the nicknamed Boomer. And it turns out that Boomer was actually a small robot uh, called a Markbot that's produced uh, by a Silicon Valley company. And these were used widely in Iraq and Afghanistan. And essentially what they are are small remote control vehicles that can be used for reconnaissance purposes to basically find roadside bombs and potentially defuse them. Many of these mark bots were not ultimately successful. They might have exploded. And in Boomer's case, that's exactly what happened. And so the beginning scene from this chapter in my book is basically recounting one of those funerals that took place um, on a U.S. military base uh, just north of Baghdad about 10 years ago. Um, these kinds of uh, situations were surprisingly common once I looked uh, at accounts of, uh, of these kinds of robot burials. Um, and it's funny in a way uh, because on the one hand you did have uh, many of these uh, soldiers and Marines forming what seemed to be emotional attachments to their uh, remote control robots to the extent that they would tattoo them with sharpies and hold burials for them if they exploded. Yet on the other hand, um, there were other units that despised their machines and talked about them as if they were, you know, um, not very intelligent or effective at, their, at doing their jobs. And in those cases, there was less sympathy uh, for the robots if they actually um, exploded. And in fact, in a few cases, the robots were uh, led to their demise um, by the remote control operators uh, at the other end. So I found that, to me, what was fascinating was the fact that there was this process of anthropomorphism, uh, this attributing human characteristics to what is obviously a machine. And that's something that's common across cultures. I mean, many different cultures around the world um, assign human traits or characteristics to things like tools or vehicles or machines. Um, for example, in Melanesia, um, islanders there have named their canoes with funny nicknames oftentimes uh, to recognize their different personalities. And if you've ever traveled through rural India or Guatemala or Mexico, uh, you find that bus drivers often name uh, the buses 
and adorn them in uh, bright colors uh, and so on. So the point here, I guess, is that many cultures around the world uh, have anthropomorphized things that are not human. Um, and so in a sense, we maybe shouldn't be so surprised that the same thing happens um, in military contexts as well. Uh, what does this have to do with the larger theme of the book? Well, as I got deeper uh, into these accounts and into the literature as well, um, I realized that on the one hand, um, these might give us a picture into a, a kind of disturbing future in which uh, men and women in military units may be as likely to empathize with um, robots or um, artificially intelligent machines as with members of their own species. And in fact, one thing that was very surprising to me was that there are people uh, in the military research laboratories, scientists, uh, that are actively involved in trying to build closer psychological bonds between humans and the robots that are forming part of their um, units. His name is Roberto Gonzalez. He's professor of anthropology at San Jose State University. We are talking about his new book, War Virtually, The Quest to Automate Conflict, Militarize Data, and Predict the Future. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. How commonly are remote-controlled robots and other automated weapons and weapon systems used by the U.S. military currently? Robotic weapons and autonomous weapon systems are used by uh, the U.S. military all the time. Um, drones have been used now for uh, more than 20 years. And as I um, mentioned in the book, we should really see these as the hallmark or the keystone of um, automated weapon systems. Drones are the most important by far, and drones are constantly uh, in use uh, around the world by the U.S. military. What is, I think, less well understood are just how many new kinds of robotic and autonomous systems are currently under development uh, by U.S. military contract firms. These range from, um, you know, robotic machines that actually look like dogs or mules uh, that are uh, essentially robotic pack mules to carry equipment uh, to uh, autonomous vehicles that look um, much like uh, tanks or submarines, but the only difference being there are no humans on board. And in some cases, these are autonomous so that they're able, uh, much like an autonomous uh, automobile, able to uh, navigate themselves and navigate their surroundings uh, based on the sensory information coming into uh, the devices. Uh, most of these obviously are not in use at the moment, but um, there are dozens and dozens of different kinds of um, technologies under development, um, which I do explore more deeply in the book. Finally, there's one um, very interesting and troubling set of technologies that are swarming technologies. So many of these are micro um, drones that may be the size of a, of a small bird and uh, are trained to uh, be deployed in swarms as if they were swarms of bees uh, or flocks of birds. And so there's a great deal of research being done right now in the military labs and by military contract firms um, around these so-called swarming technologies or swarming drones. Any sense of how much money, a U.S. taxpayer money, is being directed toward autonomous and robotic systems? The amount of taxpayer money that's being used on robotic and automated weapon systems has mushroomed. Uh, over the last 10 years or so. Just to give an example, um, in fiscal year 2019, the U.S. Congress um, was uh, basically set to provide the Defense Department with almost $10 billion uh, to fund unmanned and robotic systems, which, um, just for reference, that's significantly more uh, than the annual budget of the entire National Science Foundation. Um, and it's only increased since then. Admittedly, that's a drop in the bucket of the Pentagon's full budget, um, which is in the you know in the, around eight hundred uh, billion dollars annually. Uh, but it's growing very quickly, and uh, I think that's only going to increase in the future. You point in your book to uh, something you call robo fanaticism. Uh, this is a 
certain high-pitched enthusiasm expressed by high-ranking Pentagon and defense contractor and other military establishment elites, enthusiasm around virtual warfare technologies. Uh, talk about the extent to which this uh, robo-fanaticism uh, infuses or infects the defense establishment, and also uh, the sorts of arguments advanced by those who promote robotic technologies. Well, the robo-fanaticists, as I, I call them in the book, are, yes, very vocal proponents um, of these technologies, many of whom, incidentally, uh, once they're done uh, doing their stints as, as military uh, elites, wind up on the boards of uh, many of the defense firms that are actually building these technologies. Um, the arguments they make are, are oftentimes demonstrably false. Um, some examples are that um, the most obvious uh, argument that they make is somehow that the machines will keep our troops safe because they can perform the, what they call the three Ds, dull, dirty, and dangerous tasks. Um, they often argue that the robots will result in fewer civilian casualties uh, since robots can hypothetically identify enemies with greater precision than humans can, um, although there's little evidence uh, that would support that. Another argument is that the robots uh, will be cost-effective and efficient, that uh, they will allow uh, military uh, units to get more done with less. Um, and then another argument that's often repeated is that the devices will allow us to stay ahead of China's military, which, uh, according to some experts, is advancing very quickly um, in the area of artificial intelligence um, and military applications of AI. Um, I just want to give one example of, of a false uh, kind of narrative here, and that's the idea that somehow an unmanned aerial drone is unmanned. Uh, and the truth of the matter is that if we take a look at the Predator drone, it requires at least three human controllers, a pilot, a sensor operator, and a mission intelligence coordinator. And apart from that, you need an entire support team of data analysts and people on the ground who service the drone, uh, both before and after flights. So, you know, the arguments, as I say in the book, um, I think a lot of it is just hype. Um, and a lot of it is from very disinterested um, proponents um, of, of these technologies. You write that perhaps the most compelling rhetorical argument advanced by these uh, robo-fanatics is autonomy's apparent inevitability. Yes, I think the most compelling argument that the robo-fanaticists make is this idea that somehow um, robots will be the future, that it's a foregone conclusion, that automation and artificial intelligence is it's basically gonna, going to happen, whether or not you want it. Just to give one example, um, the Defense Science Board, uh, which is a research board uh, assembled by the Department of Defense, um, basically did a study about six years ago. And uh, it was supposed to be on autonomous systems. And I was expecting uh, to see a, you know, a more or less objective account of the pros and cons of autonomous systems. Uh, but instead, there was a sort of, it was a priori assumption that autonomous systems uh, will be developed. And the report was really, uh, in the end, about how best to overcome obstacles from people within the military, uh, rank and file, to uh, adopting these new technologies. I call this line of argument the inevitability syndrome, this idea that somehow it's going to happen whether or not you want it. And it's a classic kind of controlling process to tamp down debate, to stifle debate and silence um, any critical questions that might be asked. And um, to me, that's a signal that there may be something wrong and that there needs to be more, more exposure behind the scenes to see what's really going on and what are the real potential dangers of these um, lethal technologies. His name is Roberto Gonzalez. He's a cultural anthropologist based at San Jose State University. And we are talking about his new book. It's called War Virtually, 
The Quest to Automate Conflict, Militarize Data, and Predict the Future. It's published by University of California Press. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. It's important, and you note this in your book, to define what exactly a robot soldier is, and specifically whether it relies entirely on human commands for direction or whether it can operate somewhat or completely independently of human oversight and intervention. So I imagine the answers to those questions depends on the the type of uh, weapons or other systems we're talking about, correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, The range and variety of experimental and actual robot and autonomous systems is staggering. I mean, just to give a few examples here, um, we're talking about aerial drones, all kinds of ground vehicles, uh, warships and submarines, um, automated missiles, and then the robots that are under development. I mean, just more shapes and sizes that you, than you could possibly imagine. Uh, bipedal androids, uh, quadrupedal gadgets that trot like dogs or mules, um, swarming machines that look like insects in a way, um, and then streamlined uh, aquatic devices that some of which look like fish or crustaceans. Um, I mean, it's really uh, it's really pretty amazing uh, what's under development right now. Um, and so, along with that, is uh, a range of interfaces between the human and these machines. Um, the way within the robotics industry that this is talked about is really in terms of to which degree, the degree to which humans are in the loop. So um, you can think of this as a kind of three-phase sort of trajectory where uh, on the one hand you've got remote controlled robots um, which are entirely controlled by humans. Humans have a controller of some kind. So that's called a system in which humans are in the loop. Um, And then you've got semi-autonomous Uh, or supervised autonomous systems in which humans are on the loop, meaning that they can, uh, that these devices are autonomous, they're able uh, to move and to certain degree make decisions on their own, but humans are in a kind of supervisory uh, position and able to intervene. Uh, If you want to think of a slightly different analogy, uh, imagine an automated uh, self-driving car in which a human is sitting in the passenger seat ready to hit the brakes or uh, take over if there's a problem with the system. And then the most advanced uh, forms of autonomous systems would be uh, completely autonomous systems in in which humans are entirely out of the loop. And so at the moment, much of the debate within military circles has to do uh, with the degree to which automated systems should allow or require human intervention. In other words, to what degree should humans be in the loop versus out of the loop. What do Pentagon planners mean by human-machine teaming, T-E-A-M-I-N-G, and what have you learned about this kind of of warfighting mode? Most of the work being done right now within the Defense Department around autonomous systems um, is not so much focused on fully autonomous weapon systems as it is on human-machine teams and these are sometimes called centaur warfighters, um, as in the mythical centaur uh, figure that was um, you know, half human and half horse. Um, so the idea of human-machine teams uh, as a kind of intermediate form of technology, not quite fully autonomous, but advanced beyond simple remote control, it really took off about 2015. And... Um, I think it had a lot to do with the emergence of a very vocal group of critics of autonomous weapon systems um, that is sometimes called the Campaign to Ban Killer Robots. Uh, They were founded in 2013 as a coalition of NGOs and civil society organizations. Uh, And it included the International Committee for Robot Arms Control and Amnesty International and a number of other um, well-known Uh, NGOs. Um, They received a lot of attention, not just in the U.S., but internationally, for bringing attention to the rapid uh, deployment or development and deployment of uh, semi-autonomous and autonomous weapon systems. 
And um, I think the Defense Department's focus uh, from 2015 forward on these human-machine teams was in, in some ways a response to those criticisms um, so that the Pentagon, I think, became very adamant about insisting that humans would not be out of the loop and that there would always be some sort of human oversight over these systems. So human-machine teams are really where much of the um, investment has gone in terms of resources and development. And uh, the idea here is that humans would um, basically take those roles, for example, in a combat unit, um, in which human judgment is necessary. Um, and then essentially the computers, the machines, uh, the autonomous systems would do all the rest. Um, so just to quote one uh, proponent of the human machine teams, the Centaur warfighters, um, this is a, a former Marine by the name of Robert Work, an officer. Uh, he said, computers will fly the missiles, aim the lasers, jam the signals, read the sensors, and pull all the data together over a network, putting it into an intuitive interface humans can read, understand, and use to command the mission. And humans would be still be in the mix, using the machine to make better human decisions. So the idea here is that um, if you take the best that humans can bring to a warfighting team and combine it with the best that um, a machine can, an artificial intelligence, then you've got um, a much more powerful uh, warfighting system. So at this point in your book, you bring up a problem, and it's a problem you mentioned earlier this hour, and that problem is, well, it relates to trust, trust between humans and machines, the trust that humans are willing to put in or invest in the machines, for example, the the weapons they are uh, fighting alongside, let's say on the battlefield, or uh, that they are trying to control in battlefields that are far away from the human operators. Um, the challenge you point to is of convincing humans to trust machines. So before we get into the efforts taken by researchers within the military and beyond it, collaborating with the military, research into uh, you know how that trust can be developed or promoted. What's the problem here? Why would humans, why would human warfighters, human soldiers uh, distrust a machine that is deployed specifically to help in the war effort? That's a great question. I think way to think about it is by flipping the question around and ask not so much why is it that so many soldiers and pilots and sailors and marines mistrust robots we might ask why should they um, the fact of the matter is there have been well-documented um, cases of um, I guess what are sometimes called fratricide I put that in quotes uh, in the book because um, it's not so much uh, one human soldier uh, killing another, but it's a case of an automated weapon system uh, running amok and killing someone from the same military uh, that launched the weapon. Um, and so one of the earliest cases were the so-called Patriot fratricides, uh, which happened during the early phases um, of Operation Iraqi Freedom back in uh, 2003. Uh, couple of semi-autonomous ballistic missiles launched by the U.S. Army um, destroyed a British warplane and a U.S. Navy fighter plane. Uh, both pilots were killed. Um, and there have been a number of other uh, so-called friendly fire incidents um, in Iraq and Afghanistan and other uh, parts of the world, too. One of the highest profile cases of drone um, killing U.S. soldiers happened in Afghanistan uh, in 2011 when a Predator drone uh, fired uh, two Hellfire missiles at what uh, the drone operator thought was a group of Taliban fighters uh, lying in a field. Uh, it turns out that two American soldiers died in that uh, incident. Um, and so there have been a number, there have been enough cases uh, that have been, again, documented and investigated um, by the military a friendly fire 
and many, many more close calls uh, to engender a kind of deep mistrust on the part of soldiers and, and pilots and, and marines and so forth. So there's a, there is a, a kind of inherent distrust of, of these systems. Now what's really, uh, I think, interesting in a way is that if we look at another kind of autonomous system, uh, an autonomous automobile or a self-driving car, um, you've got the opposite problem where many drivers are placing too much trust in the vehicle. And there have been a number of high-profile uh, lethal accidents in which drivers um, were killed when they put their vehicles in um, self-driving mode and uh, essentially stopped paying attention uh, to the road. And so you've got uh, automobile engineers at places like Nissan and Volvo doing research on the opposite problem, which is overtrust in autonomous systems. Um, the difference, of course, is that I think from the point of view of a, of a car driver, an autonomous system isn't going to necessarily be a, a high stakes life and death situation in quite the same way than, a mil than an automated weapon system might. Uh, but in any case, there are uh, researchers across a number of industries looking at this question of trust, either too much trust or too little trust uh, as, it's, as it's perceived or as it's uh, interpreted by the manufacturers themselves. I'm joined today by Roberto Gonzalez. He teaches anthropology at San Jose State University. His books include Connected, How a Mexican Village Built Its Own Cell Phone Network, and Militarizing Culture, Essays on the Warfare State. He's got a new book out. It's called War Virtually, The Quest to Automate Conflict, Militarize Data, and Predict the Future. The program you're listening to is Against the Grain. I'm C.S. Song. There is also, as you, you point out, the uh, apparently unintentional targeting of civilians, of civilians by uh, military robots. Has that been a big problem, and is that part of uh, the issue of whether military personnel actually trust some of these systems? I think there are quite a few people within the military that are really concerned about the um, civilian casualties that are inflicted by drones uh, in particular. To me, it was striking that even the Defense Science Board um, admitted early on um, that robotic weapon systems don't eliminate the fog of war. They actually make it worse. And um, in their report, they this is a quote, enemy leaders look like everyone else, enemy combatants look like everyone else, enemy vehicles look like civilian vehicles, enemy installations look like civilian installations, enemy equipment and materials look like civilian equipment and materials." End quote. So here you have the Defense Science Board itself acknowledging the really um, deep flaws within the imagery coming back from drones and uh, which is going to impact the decision-making process. Um, and we see the results of that today where um, U.S. drone attacks in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Somalia and Yemen have killed as many as uh, 1,700 civilians, including some 400 children. And this is a conservative estimate since there's no consensus about who counts as a combatant. Um, the overall death toll of the U.S. drone wars is estimated at anywhere from um, 9,000 to 12,000 people. And this is uh, information from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Some of the uh, military personnel voices you highlight in this book are pretty striking. You refer to what the Navy commander Greg Smith said or wrote in 2015 about the faith that drone operators and commanders place in aerial drones. You point to how military personnel responded to news that the U.S. Marine Corps was testing a remote-controlled robot. Um, share some of that information with us, uh, some of those sentiments. Well, in the case of the U.S. Navy commander uh, that I quote on the book, he very eloquently um, told the story of how unmanned drones really are uh, unpredictable and sometimes come very dangerously close um, to planes, to jets that have pilots. And so these are drones that may stray uh, from their intended flight path and wind up, um, in some cases, 
causing accidents. Um, my favorite line from uh, this Navy commander is, he says, after nearly a decade of sharing the skies with drones, most naval aviators no longer believe that they're trying to kill them, but one shouldn't be confused that this is trust in the drones or the drone operators. So there's a very obvious kind of distrust, I think, because of the, these kinds of close calls. Um, because as I've said many times and, and say in the book, these are very flawed technologies, very uh, imprecise uh, in many ways. Um, one of the other things that I found in looking at what's been published, much of it online uh, by people within the military, including uh, a Marine that I did, uh, I did quote, um, was this sense that these robotic systems, remote controlled systems, seem to be really appealing for military brass who don't actually have to work with them in a battlefield, um, but that for the ordinary uh, foot soldier, these things are just a bad idea. And um, there was one uh, infantryman from the army who described uh, these kinds of robots as absolutely terrible. He said, our commander pushed every chance to use it just because the miniguns sound cool and we had a lot of top brass watching us and just about every time it failed in their faces. So I think the, the infantry men and women and soldiers and Marines on the ground uh, have a much more realistic view of things. And again, I think this gets back to the issue of mistrust. This is why they mistrust the units because I think oftentimes they recognize that these are uh, oftentimes technologies that military brass um, are excited about, and uh, if they support these technologies, if the office, the um, military commanders do, it may help them in their own careers, uh, advance their own careers. But for uh, for the grunts on the line, uh, you know, for the foot soldiers on the ground, um, they're the ones that have to live with these uh, technologies and live with the consequences uh, of what happens when they don't function as advertised. So I guess one way in which uh, military higher-ups could respond to some of their personnel's distrust of these machines, of these systems, of these automated and autonomous systems is to, you know, just reevaluate whether uh, these systems belong on the battlefield or in use. And yet you write, and you've, you've looked at this very carefully that, you know, each branch of the military has a research laboratory and these laboratories are doing something very different uh, with this issue of, or in response to this issue of, well, perhaps our folks, our uh, men and women don't trust the machines they're being assigned to operate or to be in the, in, in, on the war front with. Uh, what are these labs looking at specifically? Well, I think many of the scientists working within these labs begin from the assumption that lack of trust in these machines by humans is a, a problem that needs to be solved. The problem isn't so much with the technology. From their point of view, the problem is with the human. So how can the scientists come up with techniques, whether that these are uh, introducing new designs into the technology, into the automated systems, or rewiring the humans so that the humans drop that mistrust and uh, become more comfortable working alongside these machines. So there are a whole, and by the way, most of these people are social scientists, psychologists in particular, um, are the key scientists here in the um, in the area of what's called trust calibration initiatives within the Army Research Laboratory, the Air Force Research Laboratory, the Naval Research, Research Laboratory, and the Marine Corps Warfighting Laboratory. Each of them has a team of dedicated scientists working on what they call the trust, the trust issue or the trust problem. Um, and some groups are uh, working on creating a more user-friendly interface uh, between the warfighter, between the soldier or the pilot and the machine. Um, others are working on uh, something that they call situation-based agent transparency. 
So what that means is the robot basically reporting information about its plans and motivations and outcomes to the soldier. So they're basically one of the key areas with, uh, that they're looking at is how to create more streamlined and clear information between the human and the machine, uh, between the robot or autonomous system, so that the human has a better understanding of what the machine is, is going to do in advance. And so that uh, on the other side, so that the robot or the autonomous system can have a better sense of the human state of emotion uh, and of, of thought uh, and so on. Um, also, they're doing some other things that, um, as well, such as um, the design, the, the actual visual uh, interface. So some people are asking questions about what if we create a more human-looking robot or autonomous system? Is it possible that humans would place greater trust if, if we change the physical appearance of the machine? Finally, I should just mention the most important one uh, for many of these laboratories is training. What kinds of trainings? training sessions might be developed where, um, whereby that instinctive uh, mistrust of machines that seems to be very common um, across the military can be broken down and maybe replaced with an embrace of or complete trust in the machines. You are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Roberto Gonzalez is my guest. He is a professor of anthropology at San Jose State University. We have a link to Roberto's webpage, faculty page on our website, againstthegrain.org, as well as a link to the new book of his that we are talking about. It's called War Virtually, The Quest to Automate Conflict, Militarize Data, and Predict the Future. It's published by University of California Press. What's your sense, Roberto, of whether these researchers will succeed in their efforts to persuade um, soldiers, human soldiers, other military personnel to put their faith in automated and autonomous or semi-autonomous warfighting machines? For me, it's really hard to say um, to what degree they're going to succeed in overcoming that um, aversion to automated weapon systems. I mean, on the surface, I think to myself, they're on a fool's errand. There's, you know, the, the mistrust is too deep and there seems little chance that someone that's actually got to interact with these technologies would place kind of blind trust in them. Uh, but then on the other hand, I mean, it's only taken a few decades for specialists, including many psychologists, to develop fairly simple techniques to overcome so deeply ingrained aversion to destroying human life. So I'm on the fence on this one. I, I just don't know the degree to which these trust engineers might be successful in setting out to accomplish what they're trying to do. In a broader sense, what do you find unsettling or objectionable about what these researchers, which you call trust engineers, are doing? What troubles me the most about the militarization of social science and of science more generally really has to do with what happens to the shape of scientific research when military institutions and their objectives dominate um, a particular field of study. You know, more than 50 years ago, the sociologist C. Wright Mills um, talked about what he called the military metaphysic. And uh, what he meant by that was a definition of reality that embraces militarism and militaristic values in all spheres of life. Um, to me, what concerns me as a scientist is that if you've got the military pumping billions and billions of dollars into a particular kind of research, um, whether it's the development of autonomous weapon systems or the kind of work that the trust engineers are doing, what it does is, is to distort and bend science to the imperatives of the military and its institutions rather than the pursuit of objective uh, knowledge. 
And to me, that's a real problem um, because that distortion, that bending of science, um, means that priorities are given to the military uh, rather than for more uh, humane ends. And, and that's something that I think anyone who's a scientist uh, should be concerned about and push back against. We've been talking, Roberto, about really only one chapter of your book, War Virtually. Uh, what else can one find between the covers of this book? There's a number of things that I explore in depth in the book, and one of them is the emergence of um, what are called predictive modeling programs. And so these are uh, programs that um, basically take in multiple forms of data, uh, for example, from drone sensors, uh, drone video footage, uh, from social media online, um, from satellite imagery that might be beamed in, um, from surveillance satellites, um, from news reports and other kinds of open source intelligence that might be available. And uh, what the predictive modeling software is designed to do is to basically take all of that into account to try to come up with a predictive assessment of where an armed conflict may be likely to happen or on a, on a smaller scale, even where uh, within, for example, a particular city where a mass protest might happen. And so um, there's quite a, a number of companies, both big names like BAE Systems um, and Lockheed Martin, as well as dozens and dozens of smaller companies that are involved in um, the development of these predictive uh, modeling programs. So that's an important chapter in the book that um, I think not a lot of people um, think about too much because it's not the, the kind of um, technology that's easy to understand necessarily. Um, the way drones are, are very visual. I mean, we're talking about software programs here and analytical tools, uh, but I think they're extremely important and um, that, that we should be critical of their claims as well and we should be uh, concerned about uh, what the potential problems with these kinds of software programs might be. Um, in another section of the book, I explore what I call high-tech psyops, psychological operations. So uh, really I'm looking at the transition between older forms of psychological warfare and psychological operations, which often entailed um, you know, dropping leaflets out of airplanes or helicopters um, to foreign populations to um, change their minds about a particular policy um, to a transformation of PSYOPs in which now it's largely uh, driven by uh, social media and big data collected from social media and then used to target individuals within a society and bombard them with propaganda messages essentially. Finally, there's a section of the book in which I look more deeply at the role of Silicon Valley and the technology industry in the development of these new technologies. And this is a thing that really runs throughout the book, but I do uh, spend some time going into depth on the idea that we need to stop thinking about Silicon Valley as simply um, a place where wonderful inventions are created um, and where um, the tech industry um, stands as kind of a monument to the innovation of this region. And I argue that really we need to start seeing Silicon Valley and the tech industry as being very closely aligned with um, the military industrial complex. Um, in essence, what I'm arguing is that big tech and big defense are closer now than they've ever been in the past, and that that should really concern us. One of the things that I highlight uh, when I'm discussing this in the book is a conversation that I had with um, a former chief scientist at Google by the name of Jack Polson, who left Google when he found out that Google executives had secretly signed a contract uh, with the Defense Department to employ artificial intelligence to analyze drone footage uh, from drones uh, taking photos in Afghanistan. 
uh, Polson quit in protest and created his own um, nonprofit research group, which is doing really great work. Uh, they're called Tech Inquiry, and I encourage your listeners uh, to check out their website and their reports, which are really dig deep into the close ties between the Pentagon uh, and uh, Silicon Valley tech giants like uh, like Google and and um, and Microsoft uh, in particular, as well as Palantir and and others that are part of the uh, this military technology complex. Um, but what Polson said to me, it, it will always stick in my mind. He said, the marriage of big tech and big defense, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said it's closer than it's ever been before and it's going to get closer in the future. And he said, imagine, if you will, a company with financial resources of Amazon um, basically taking over Raytheon or Lockheed Martin because the financial resources of Amazon is so much larger than um, even the biggest military firms. And um, if their interests align closely enough, why wouldn't Amazon then uh, go in that direction? His name is Roberto Gonzalez. He's co-editor of volumes like Militarization, a Reader, and Up, Down, and Sideways, Anthropologists Trace the Pathways of Power. He teaches anthropology at San Jose State University. And we've been talking about his new book, War Virtually, The Quest to Automate Conflict, Militarize Data, and Predict the Future. Roberto, thanks very much for writing this book and for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. It was a real pleasure. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, as Albert Einstein once said, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. 